morning, everyone. Great to be together and great to be back with you this morning. I was visiting our sister church, Trinity Cambridge, last Sunday. Had a great time there. And just to report to you that they're doing really well. God is blessing them and using them, and they're growing and adding new people, reaching out to people, and, and um, the grace of God is very active there. So it was wonderful to be with them, and great uh, to have Jacob come and be with you guys as well. Jacob pastors our sister church in Manchester. Um, and if you are a guest with us, uh, I should introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad that you're with us. Pray God's blessing on you. We are continuing our series in the Old Testament, looking at this wonderful part of Scripture that helps us understand who God is and what it means to be His people. We've been making our way through the Old Testament, looking at really whole books and major figures in the Old Testament. So this morning we're going to look at the book of Isaiah. Um, so you can be turning there, and in particular you can look at chapter 6. I'll be keying off of chapter 6 uh, to kind of use it as a template to understand the whole book. Uh, this is one of the largest books of the entire Bible, one of the most influential as well. There are 85 different references to the Isaiah in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus referred to Isaiah often, only citing the Psalms and Deuteronomy more. So this is a really important book in the scriptures. Isaiah was a prophet uh, related actually to the royal line. Um, that he ministered about 50 years, so quite a length of time, over the reigns of three to four kings. King Jotham, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, and then, according to tradition, he died during the reign of King Manasseh, evil King Manasseh, who had him put to death. He was executed, uh, understood that he was sawn in two. So in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.37, it mentions being those who were faithful even being sawn in two. That's probably referring to Isaiah. So a long career of faithfulness to the Lord, even to the point of death. He, like Micah, we looked at uh, before, ministered in around the same time, this time where there was great economic growth, but also great spiritual decline. And he came to call people back to their covenant with God, predicting imminent judgment for them, but also promising future redemption. Um, so just a little bit of background. The book is mostly poetic. Uh, it has a couple of historical sections, chapter 7 and 36 to 39, and we'll touch on that as we go. So we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you haven't turned there already, as you turn, let, let me just ask you, have you ever had an epiphany? You know what epiphany is? It's a sudden revelation, a sudden appearance of something, a, a sudden understanding that maybe you didn't have before. Have you ever had an epiphany in your life, that place where you all of a sudden were just like, wow, that's how that works, or wow, that's the truth, or wow, that's, that's what God wants. I, I've had them. Um, one I had that wasn't too profound, but actually had a great influence in my life. I was in my second semester of college, and my previous habit in school was to sit near the back and goof off, and, uh, and so that's what I usually did. And I was in school my second semester. I had a, a mediocre first semester. My second semester I was in like science class or something, sitting at the back, goofing off, and all of a sudden I had this thought. I'm paying thousands of dollars for this education. What am I doing sitting in the back goofing off? I, I should start investing in my education by paying attention. So I moved to the front of the class, like not immediately. I didn't get up in the middle of class. But from then on, I started sitting near in the first one or two rows and paying attention. And now, nothing against those who sit in the back. 
but I need to sit in the front because my mind wanders and I'll, I'll, like, I'll be totally somewhere else in another, another land of fantasy and humor uh, and not in class if I sit at the back. So I sat up front and that actually changed my whole academic and vocational career because I started doing well in school and that had a, an effect. So that was an epiphany for me, just this sudden realization like, dummy, you're spending thousands of dollars to goof off in the back of the class. That makes no sense. So sit up close and invest. Isaiah had an epiphany. And chapter 6 is really that epiphany, and it's the fullest sense of the word. He has this epiphany where God appears to him. He has a revelation of God in chapter 6. And in that revelation of God, everything changes for Isaiah. His view on everything changes. And, and so what I want to communicate to you, the central truth, I think, of Isaiah, for Isaiah himself, for Israel, and for us as well as we encounter this book, is this. That the revelation of God as holy, sovereign, and our Redeemer, the revelation of God as holy, sovereign, and our Redeemer changes everything. The revelation of God as holy, sovereign, and our Redeemer changes our lives and propels us to go in His name. That's what I think Isaiah teaches us. We're going to dig into this. We're going to look at these topics of holy, sovereign, and Redeemer, and then we're just going to finish with talking about how that propels us to go. But first, let's pray. And then we'll look at, at chapter 6. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you are interested in granting us a real epiphany this morning. A realization, a sudden realization about who you are. And the truth that comes with that. And Lord, I pray that you would grant that. You would wake us up, Lord. I, I know that I can be lulled into a pattern of just kind of going through the motions. And we need you to speak to us. And we thank you that your word is living and active. That you are God who's alive and you love to speak to us. We want to be there with Isaiah in the throne room and we want to be there in the Word and we want to be ourselves affected and propelled to go to represent you by your grace as well. So come and speak to us. Reveal yourself and glorify your name, we pray. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. God's word from Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. 
Again, the truth here, the revelation of God as holy, sovereign, and our Redeemer changes our lives and propels us to go in His name. So let's dig into this. First, the Holy God. This is a key theme in Isaiah. The holiness of God. Isaiah actually calls God 25 different times the Holy One of Israel. So His name for God is the Holy One of Israel. 25 times. Only said 6 other times elsewhere in Scripture. So 25 times He's called the Holy One of Israel. This is part of why Isaiah even has a ministry because God is holy and His people are not. And so Isaiah is sent by God to call his people back to God, to call his people back to holiness. And those two go together. To know God is to be called to holiness. He is a God without sin. He's perfect in his goodness. Spotless. He's glorious beyond comprehension. There's no shadow of a hint of darkness, of moral compromise, of imperfection, of weakness in God. He is pure holiness and light and glory. That's who he is. And we see in this passage that he's holy. Isaiah starts, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah had reigned for about 50 years and had been a time of great material prosperity but great spiritual decline. It was a time of mediocrity and malaise, actually, in Israel. Even though things looked good economically, they didn't look good spiritually. And he had this long reign that really was a, a reign of, of spiritual malaise and mediocrity. And in the year that he died, Isaiah saw the great king of glory. So a mediocre king had died, and now Isaiah saw the real king, the king of holiness. And he's first and foremost characterized as holy. In this scene, just imagine the, the, the scene of the throne room. He's, he's in the throne room, and, and just picture, it says that he, that God is seated on the throne. The Lord is seated on the throne. It's high and lifted up. This is a throne that's a great throne. And it's probably at, at the top of some stairs or something. It's high and lifted up. Just picture maybe the U.S. Capitol steps. And you're at the bottom of the steps and you're looking up. And at the top of those steps is a great throne. And God sits on the throne. And, and God's his robe fills the temple. So his He's clothed in glory, basically. He's clothed, we, we see elsewhere in Scripture, in unapproachable light. He dwells in unapproachable light. So there's glory, there's light shining from the throne. And his robe is, is a, a robe of, of glory, of, of supernova brightness, just filling everything there. And, and the train of his robe, the, the length of his robe, the, the eminence of his glory fills the whole temple. It's just full of light and glory. And so Isaiah can't really even fully look at God. And he's high lifted up on the throne, full of glory, full of light. That's what Isaiah is seeing. And then there are these seraphim, these fire angels. That's what seraphim means. They're fire angels. They're probably themselves full of light and glorious, and like they're on fire. And they are mighty, mighty beings. They're not humans. They're not quaint little angels with gold hair, these nice, you know, grandmotherly type angels or something with little wings. These are glorious creatures made by God to worship and serve Him. And they cover their eyes and they cover their feet because they're in the presence of the holiness, the glory of God. And they fly and they proclaim with these voices that shake the ground. These are voices that cause basically earthquakes. That's the, the, the impact. When they say holy, it, it, there's an earthquake. The building shakes with their voices. Can you imagine that? 
glorious angels, everything shakes, and the cloud of God's glory fills the temple. So it's the throne room is also the temple. And the cloud of His glory fills it. There's smoke, glory that fills the room. It's dense with the cloud of, glory, of God's glory. And they say, holy, holy, holy. In Scripture and in the Hebrew language, they don't have a way to express the superlative like we do, right? So if we say something is good, right, then we can say it's great or it's greater or we have four ways, greatest, right? So if we want to say something's like, that was the best meal I ever had, that was the greatest meal. They didn't have that little S sort of thing on the end, so what they would do is they would use repetition. Actually, in Genesis 14, it's a story of Abraham rescuing Lot from the kings around the Dead Sea, and uh, it says that there were these tar pits. It says in the ESV it was full of tar pits, but that's not literally how it says it in Hebrew. In Hebrew it says it was pits of pits of tar. That's what it says. Pits of pits of tar. Like, what? What it means, basically, it was the pittiest pits of tar you could ever encounter. In other words, in English, it was full of tar pits. That's how it's translated. So they repeat pit. It's a piteous pit. And it means it's very, there's a, it's a big one. There's a lot of it. So in Isaiah 6, when the seraphim say, and this is in Hebrew, right, are saying holy, 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 they're saying holiest of the holiest holy is the Lord. Holiest of the holiest holy is the Lord. He is holy beyond expression. He is glorious beyond expression. He is perfect beyond expression. He, he is infinite beyond expression. He's faultless. There's no shadow. There's no imperfection. There's no weakness. There's only pure and infinite, incomprehensible, unapproachable glory in the Lord. That's what they're saying. And Isaiah is called to speak of this holy God to a people who had abandoned holiness. They had abandoned devotion to God. They had abandoned finding their refuge in God. They had abandoned trusting God for their lives. They had abandoned a deep love for each other. They had abandoned kindness and generosity one to another. These are all aspects of holiness. These are all characteristics of God. And to know God is to walk in these things. And so a core aspect of this book of Isaiah is about the holiness of God. And we see it in chapter 6, and we see it throughout the book. God is holy. And it's so important to get that He's holy. It's so important to understand that He is holy, holy, holy. Do you know that there is no other characteristic of God that's repeated three times in Scripture? It never says God is love, 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 or God is justice, 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 or wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. But it does say God is holy, holy, holy. This is a core and essential and, and foundational aspect of God's character. To know God is to know Him as holy, as perfect and pure and good and sinless and glorious. There is no flaws, no darkness. To think that we can know God somehow without holiness is ridiculous, is an implication. To relate to God is to relate to Him as holy and to be confronted with that. To be confronted, and we're going to talk about this later, with who we are in light of His holiness. Isaiah's reaction 
is the right reaction when we see the holiness of God. We're going to talk about that. But it's to see that He's holy. To know Him, to relate to Him, is to relate to Him as holy, preeminently above all things. I think we get that. When we know people that are about one thing, and I probably do too many football illustrations, but I did think about football with this one. If you were to be friends with Tom Brady, right, would there be any way to have a friendship without him without talking football? No, right? If you know about Tom Brady, he's a guy that he eats, he has a special diet so he can play football better and longer. He sleeps for football, he practices for football, he thinks for football, he feels for football, he lives for football. He's football, right? Tom Brady is about football. And if you were his friend, you would have to deal with that. If you're going to know God, you need to know that he is about holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And to know him is to know him that way and to be called to be confronted by his holiness and to be called to walk in his holiness as well. In Scripture, we are called to be holy because, why? Most all, uh, importantly, he is holy. That's why. And to know him requires a life of holiness. So let me just ask you by way of application on this point. Is your God a God of utter and unfathomable holiness? Is holiness his prime characteristic for you? Or, or is there some other characteristic that may be important that has kind of overshadowed hol holiness? Does that make sense? There are other characteristics of God we could functionally make overshadow holiness. Now all those, by the way, all those characteristics are part of his holiness, so you can't separate them. But sometimes in our priority and our understanding of the holiness and the fullness and the depth of it, we can allow another characteristic to overshadow his holiness, his perfection. His sinlessness. I think one that we can do that with is grace, believe it or not. Now, grace is really important. Grace, this idea that there's blessing and favor of God that's free, requires simply believing and receiving it. And through that grace, we'll talk about this later, there's forgiveness and there's acceptance to God, and we're counted as sons and daughters. We're welcome into the family. We can come into the throne room. That's all wonderful and very important, but we can allow grace actually to. to to overshadow holiness in a way where we think, you know, holiness just doesn't matter. The fact that God's holy just doesn't matter because I got, I'm free and I'm forgiven. And the fact that he calls me to holiness doesn't matter because I, I live in grace. That's not how grace is ever supposed to function. The way that grace must function, true grace functions, is first, yes, it's permission to come into his holiness freely and forgiven and welcome. But it is also power power to be transformed, to become like Christ, to run after holiness as freely forgiven ones, but to run after holiness. Why? So that we may know God and be close to God and look like God, look like Jesus, the God-man, corporately and individually. So grace is never meant to kind of just kind of dismiss holiness no, grace ushers you into the presence of holiness and, us, and grace transforms you to live a life of full holiness. All that, it all that it means in Scripture. The holiness that God is calling His people to in Isaiah is about how they worship Him and how they love one another. And how they love those around them as well, even the nations. That's holiness. It isn't how long your dress is. So that may be a way to live in holiness. That's not, what, that's not what it's about. Ultimately, it's about loving God and loving one another with all of our heart and all of our lives. So is this who your God is? Is your God 
a God who is holy? Is he a God who is pure and perfect? Do you know him as a God who, who hates sin? He sees sin as ugly, insulting, infectious, false, and ludicrous. He hates sin. He hates every aspect of sin. He hates it for its falsehood. He hates it for its destruction. He hates it because sin is ultimately anti-God. It's anti-holiness, but holiness is such a a core aspect of who God is that sin is anti-God. Is your God like that? Does he hate sin? Does he hate your sin? Because he's holy and good. That's who he is. He is a holy God, and he hates our sin. Every aspect of it. And he loves what's good. He loves holiness. He loves purity. He loves love and service and sacrifice and kindness and integrity and loyalty and patience. And he loves when we run to him for strength and depend on him. That's holiness when we come to him and we trust in him and say, Lord, apart from you, I cannot be holy. Change my life. He loves that. That's who he is. But he hates sin with a pure hatred. All of it, whatever it might be. Isaiah, it's, unhelp- it's his speech that he's reminded of. His lips, and so often that's the most practical and immediate way we're unholy, isn't it? Our complaining, our unhelpful speech towards others. But all the as- aspects of our sin, God hates it. He loves the good. He's holy, holy, holy. Is this your God? This is the God of Isaiah. Second characteristic, he is the sovereign God. He's holy and he's sovereign. This is a key theme in Isaiah. We see it in chapter 6 because Isaiah sees the Lord the year the king Uzziah dies. He sees the Lord on his throne, the throne of a king, ruling and reigning over all things. In a sense, he's saying, you've you've been under this reign of Uzziah, but I am the ultimate king who reigns over all, and my glory fills the earth, the, the seraphims say. His glory fills the earth. There's not any place in all creation where His glory is not manifest in some way, where He's not shown, where He's not present and presiding and ruling. Whether it's His glory in mercy and kindness to bless or His glory in His holiness and justice to punish. There's nowhere you can go where He doesn't reign and He's not there and present and over it. He is the sovereign one. And this is the message in Isaiah 6. This is the message throughout the Bible. This is the message throughout Isaiah We see it in particularly when the kings that Isaiah is prophesying to deal with some of the great superpowers of the day. And in the historical section, actually in Ezekiel, I mean Ezekiel, Isaiah 36 through 39, there's this interchange with King Hezekiah. And the greatest nation, as far as a war machine that had they had ever known at that point, was coming against Israel, coming against the southern kingdom of Judah and had basically wiped out the whole Mideast, and had wiped out just about every city in Judah, and only Jerusalem was left. And it was this massive army, brutal. The Assyrians were brutal in their warfare, introduced some of the, the most horrific aspects of warfare that we've ever known. And they're outside the walls. And there's pictured like hundreds, hundreds of thousands of, so, of soldiers and their siege works and everything. They're there. And there's only Hezekiah in the walled city of Jerusalem. And it's in this context that God speaks of his sovereignty to Hezekiah and to his people. And Hezekiah, Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and and calls him to trust in the Lord. Hezekiah prays 
and interacts with Isaiah, Hezekiah says, Lord, I look to you. This is a crazy circumstance. We can't do anything. We're going to be overrun unless you show up, God. My trust is in you. Now, Hezekiah does that earlier on. King Ahaz doesn't do that. You can read historically in chapter 7 and elsewhere in the Bible. But King Hezekiah does. He comes to the Lord, and the Lord answers. And here in chapter 37 it says, God's reply, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Quote, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago, God speaking of himself to the Assyrians. I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all these dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. God demonstrated his complete sovereignty over the most powerful kingdom of the day. And over and over again in this book, Isaiah reminds the people that God is sovereign and He rules. The nations are a drop in the bucket, Isaiah 40 says. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is saying, I am the glorious one. I reign and I rule, and I know what's going to happen, and I have determined what's going to happen. I rule over all things. I am sovereign. God wants them to know that no nation, no man, no circumstance, nothing in all creation is outside of His sovereign and utter control. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to live in that in our lives. He is sovereign. He is in control. He rules over all, even the, the littlest details and the greatest nations. He rules over it all. We see this in the life of Jesus in a profound way. Jesus actually fulfilled 300 prophecies in his life and death and resurrection. 300 prophecies. 300 things that were predicted 400 or more years before he lived. He fulfilled. How? Because God is sovereign. God, the triune God. But Jesus as the Son, as he trusted in the Father, his Father orchestrated all these things. I was just actually looking uh, up some of the things on this, and do you, do you realize that just to fulfill eight prophecies, for one person to fulfill eight prophecies, eight things predicted, is a one in one and ten to the seventeenth power? 
Now that may seem really abstract. That's a huge number. And I, I, I saw actually a, a group, intelligentfaith315.com, illustrated it this way. They said, imagine if you had a, a cookie, a particular cookie, maybe you bit it, or it's a chocolate chip cookie, and you were to have that one cookie among 10 to the 17th cookies. Now if you used, the cookies were Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. I'm being told to go this way. Some, am I off camera? We're on camera. So Anyhow, Thin Mint cookies. Uh, if you had 10 to the 17th Thin Mint cookie, they would fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many. And the chances of you fulfilling eight prophecies is like you being dropped randomly from a helicopter into Texas somewhere with a blindfold on, reaching down and picking up that chocolate chip cookie that you wanted to find. That's the chances. It's ridiculous. Just for eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies in his life. Why? Because God's sovereign over everything. Everything there is in creation, he's in control. And even more significantly, God was sovereign over the tragedy of Jesus' crucifixion. The very worst thing that could ever happen to humanity is for God, the, 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 the man, the innocent, glorious one who deserves all praise and deserves to rule over all nations, for him to be murdered. The perfectly innocent one. The greatest tragedy that could happen. And that's what happened in Jesus' life. He was murdered at the hands of the authorities and really at the hands of demonic authorities. Yet God presided over it all and worked the greatest good out of the greatest tragedy. That's the degree of his sovereignty. And there's truth in that that we need to think about and understand. And in our own lives to, to realize if he's sovereign in Isaiah and he's sovereign over Jesus' life, he's always sovereign and he's sovereign over my life. And is there anywhere in my life where I actually don't live that way? And that's my question to you. Is he sovereign over your life in every aspect? Do you understand? Do you live in light of that? Or is there some aspect of your life where you're just not believing that? You know, this, this problem's too big. This tragedy's too horrific. This sin I struggle with has too strong a behold in my life for God to reign here. The truth of Isaiah is he is sovereign. And he can dispatch and rule and bring healing and bring good out of tragedy no matter what it might be in your life. Every area of your life is under his sovereign reign, so let him rule. Let him be God. Let him be your God, the God of Isaiah. Final characteristic is he's a redeeming God. You see that in chapter 6 and elsewhere, but in chapter 6, the encounter that Isaiah has with God, he sees the holiness of God, and how does he respond? Does he think, oh, this is great, I'm going to go, go up and sit on my father's lap and cozy up to him, the holy God. Or, hey, can I fill in for the seraphim? I'd love to do that. What is Isaiah's response to the holiness of God? He sees the glory of God, he sees the perfection of God, and what's his response, which would be our response as well, where we're in the throne room? He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He immediately is aware that he has fallen short of the glory of God, far short, and his life and his actions are an offense against the holy God. And so he says, woe is me. That word, woe is me, you know, it's not like, woe is me, like a damsel in distress. Oh, woe is me, you know, so terrible. No. It's, I am toast, is what he's basically saying. I'm, I am damned. 
Woe is me. I'm in more trouble than I could ever even imagine now because I'm before the holy God and I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm from a people of unclean lips. It's who we are. We are sinful and, and casual and carefree in our words. We're sinful before a holy God. And he's, he's terrified. He's terrified in the presence of the holy God. Because he realizes that he's toast and he deserves to be toast and he could be toasted at any moment. And then amazingly, one of these glorious seraphim grabs a coal from the altar, that place where there was sacrifice, sacrifice that was meant to cover sin and meant to actually look forward to the ultimate covering of sin in Christ. That place of the altar where blood was shed, the blood of animals to cover sin. A seraphim takes one of those coals and comes over to, flies over to Isaiah and touches his lips and says something amazing. The best thing we could ever hear in the throne room. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Isaiah encounters redemption. He goes from terror in the presence of the Holy God to transformation and knowing he's forgiven, he's redeemed, his sin's paid for. It changes his life. It changes his ministry. And the message of Isaiah is full of promises of redemption. And the call of Isaiah to the people in light of God's holiness and their unholiness is to experience redemption and return to the Lord. And throughout this book, there are promises of redemption over and over and over again. Thank God He's a God of redemption. Yes, He's holy, and yes, He's sovereign, but He's a God of redemption. He rescues undeserving sinners from their sin. And, and the book of Isaiah is, is especially wonderful because more than any other prophetic book, perhaps, those promises of redemption are clearly tied to a person to the servant of the Lord. This Messiah, this, this one who would come, the anointed one who would come and rescue God's people. And so there are fantastic promises tied to the Messiah in Isaiah that, that speak to the fulfillment of what Isaiah experienced when his sin was atoned for by that coal from the altar. Isaiah 52. 53, verse 1. Speaking of this servant leader, it says, Who has believed what... He has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Speaking of this servant, the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men had hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Isaiah 61, another passage about the Messiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, speaking of Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These things are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the suffering servant leader. He is the Messiah. We know the rest of the story reading through Scripture. He's the one. He is God in the flesh. He bore the sins of many. He was struck, stricken and despised and rejected. It's interesting to note in Isaiah 53, who, by whom was he stricken and smitten and afflicted? Verses 4 and 5, if you look there in Isaiah 53. By whom? By God himself. And this ties it all together. You see, God is holy and he's sovereign. And he could not excuse Isaiah's sin merely. Just say, oh, don't worry about Isaiah. Yeah, no problem. We just forget about the dirty lip thing and the sin and all that stuff. He can't excuse sin. He can't excuse offense. A person who neglects justice when there has been an offense against an innocent party is himself guilty. A just judge, a good judge, judges someone who has offended the innocent party. And brings consequences and punishments. And God in His holiness and justice and His perfection must punish offense against His purity and goodness and holiness. He must. And because He's a God of redemption, He's made a way. For those who are His beloved, any and all who would turn to Him in faith, for His elect people, His beloved, He's made a way in His great love. He Himself bore our sorrows. God the Son bore our sins on the cross. He shed His blood on the cross. No animal could ever pay for the sins of people. It was only a picture of what was coming at the very best. In order for that coal to be effective for Isaiah, there had to be something more than mere animal sacrifices. There was a truth that Isaiah would prophesy about about this suffering servant who would come and shed his blood to pay for sins, to pay for our sins. And to bring redemption through faith as we simply believe and receive this truth and turn away from sin and turn to him. There is forgiveness, there is redemption, and we can stand and live in the assurance that our guilt is taken away and our sins are atoned for just like Isaiah. And that we are reconciled and renewed in our relationship with God and now empowered in our lives to become like him more and more. And, it, and it, that goes on this day that you believe, and that could be right now for you, the, this very moment, is simply believe and receive this truth. And it continues throughout your life, and it will culminate when Jesus returns, which could be at any moment, and makes all things new, renews and redeems all of creation. And we're going to live with the Lord without sin and sorrow and sickness, in His presence, fully redeemed forever and ever. And Isaiah talks about that. Chapter 25, you can read about that. That's redemption. That's what God does. All these glorious things. He's a God who redeems. This is our God. One more thing. In light of all this, He's a God 
He changes our lives and propels us to go for Him. And that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah is transformed in this experience. He's terrified, but then he is atoned for. And then it says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And now Isaiah has a different outlook and a different life. And what does he do? He says, Here I am. Send me. I want to go for you, Lord. The God who's holy and sovereign and the God who's redeemed me, I want to go for you. I want to represent you. I want to be your spokesperson. And this is our call as well. Not quite like Isaiah, but as his people to bring his message. Because God is interested in the truth of Isaiah, these promises, his character being known throughout the earth, spreading his glory to all peoples. There are promises in Isaiah that speak of this. Isaiah 66 speaks of this message going forth and God, what God wants to do. Listen to what it says. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and, Le and for Levites, says the Lord, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offering and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to the Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me declares the Lord. This is speaking of the ingathering of people from all nations being brought to the Lord, being reconciled to the Lord, coming to be redeemed by the Lord, to be accepted, to be, to be drawn into the presence of this holy sovereign one and to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. This message of God, the holy sovereign redeeming God, transforms our lives and the lives of all peoples to make us worshipers, to make us ones who love the Lord, and that starts right now, by the way. This work in Isaiah starts right now from the day that the church was born at Pentecost. This is being fulfilled. The word is going out, and people from all nations are being brought in as worshipers to his holy mountain. And, and it is the church at this point. And at the final conclusion, it will be in the New Jerusalem together as worshipers. This message is going forth, changing lives. And this encounter that Isaiah has propels him outward. And our encounter, the church's encounter, your individual encounter with the Lord as well, must propel you to go and to tell people about him. I'll conclude with one story. Some of you have heard this before. I heard the story of a missionary in Papua New Guinea named Brad Buser. He took 20 years to translate the Bible. And he led a small tribe, the Iteris, to faith and new life in Christ in Papua New Guinea. The transformation for this tribe was amazing. They, they had lived in, I think there's a, there's a picture of the tribe. There we go. The tribe had lived in constant fear of evil spirits and had known murder, disease, and warfare as a way of life. And as the good news of, of Isaiah, the good news of Jesus broke through, it transformed the whole tribe into a place full of truth and love and freedom.
other tribes in the area started to hear about this transformation, and they wanted help too. But Brad Buser was unable to get to the other tribes. He was, had his hands full. But they wrote him letters, and these are actual letters I'm going to read. You can follow along. Translated directly, very directly into English. And I just want you to hear God's call. The same call he said to Isaiah, whom will go for me? Whom shall I send? That you might say, Lord, send me. And that sending might be to tribes in Papua New Guinea. It might just be to somebody next door. It might be to the nations or neighbors. But hear God's call in light of what you've heard today to go. First letter, dear Let Busa. Hello, good morning. I'm Ipin Aino. I'm the leader of the Anu village. Now I'm carrying a big heavy about getting a missionary. Please, us dark ones of Anu are truly afraid of our lives. I've also got a worry for my friends here who live in the darkness. So then I've got this worry. Are you able to come and wash my eyes so I can see or not? Do you ones have a sorry for us, those of us in the dark or not? I think we stink like rotten meat or what? Is that why you send no one to plant a seed in our Anu place? This isn't new. For 18 years we've carried this heavy for nothing. Next letter. Dear Mr. Brett, yes, Brother Brad, now I'm here writing you, do you remember our talk, our meeting? You are our leader. You must listen well. If you're a real leader, you'll help us. That's why we're talking to you. Are you a trick leader or what? A leader of women? If you're a leader of men, listen to us ones of Sabamin. We try and try, but you don't listen. You ones are like pigs or dogs to us now. We're as crazy people. Are you a god or crazy? Everywhere and every place the talk of God is there. Why not us? Talk to the leaders of your church. And send us somebody. Don't give your backsides to us. Are you clear on what I'm saying here or not? We have a huge desire for a missionary to come live in our village and jungle. I'm Alus Nekibusop, the writer, Sabamin Village, Bowie River, East Sepik. Final letter. What's going on? Where is our help? Have you forgot about us? We of Sinal haven't forgotten about wanting a missionary. We carried a huge heavy constantly about this. We carry this heavy because we fear for our lives. We know the Bible, the Bible, says you should come and tell us. Us dark ones need it. How will we go to God's place if not? Only those who know will go. How will we know if no one teaches us? That's the butt of my worry. We want a missionary now to give us God's talk. Wapia Naki, Simi Village, Senduin Province. Guys, we have such good news. Our God is holy. He's perfect and sinless. He's sovereign. He rules over all. And He's a God of redemption. We are forgiven. We are free. We are joined with Him by grace. We're accepted. We're loved. And I think it's in the heart of every believer in light of this, just like it was for Isaiah. When he says, whom shall I send? I'll go. What do you want me to do? And so what I want us to do in conclusion as the band comes up, is just say, Lord, where do you want me to go? And I believe the Holy Spirit's going to bring things to mind. It might just be, you know, that guy at work. I've sort of said that person in the checkout line. For some of you, it might be he's calling you to go somewhere that you wouldn't even think about.
apart from his devotion, maybe to Papua New Guinea or somewhere exotic. But it's everything in between. And all of us are called. And so I just want us to say, Lord, I'll go. Where do you want to send me? Let's just do that in prayer, and then we'll continue to worship through communion.